I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. The picturesque hamlet of Gormley, Ontario is located approximately 40 kilometers north of downtown Toronto. Originally a farming community and a CN railroad depot, the small village has grown significantly in the past 50 years as suburban sprawl has expanded in all directions from the greater metropolitan Toronto area. But back in 1970, Gormley was still a tranquil, rural community. A nice place to live and raise a family. And it was the area's small-town charm that first attracted Doreen and Albert Morby to the area in 1961. Ten years later, they lived in an attractive A-frame house on Bethesda Side Road with their 21-month-old son, Brent. Life was busy for the young couple with an active toddler. Doreen, a registered nurse, had decided to stay home with their son, and Albert worked full-time as a gym teacher at Dawn Head Secondary School in Richmond Hill. They always looked forward to catching up over dinner at the end of each day. The morning of Wednesday, May the 6th, 1970, was a regular day for the Morbys. Albert left for his job at 7.45 a.m., while Doreen gave young Brent his breakfast. Later that morning, around 9.30, a friend of Doreen's dropped by for coffee. The two women discussed Mother's Day plans for the upcoming weekend. After her friend left, 34-year-old Doreen did some laundry while Brent was in his playpen. Then, just after 10 a.m., there was a knock at the door. Doreen wasn't expecting anyone and didn't recognize the man standing in her front porch. He was an average-looking guy, clean-cut, medium height. Maybe he was a salesman or someone looking for directions. Their house was a little isolated and back from the main road, so they didn't get too many people coming around. Doreen opened the door, and the stranger entered the house. Then, 
he pulled out a gun. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a shadowy figure who preyed upon vulnerable women. Mothers home alone with their children in a rural community where there was no one around to hear their screams or the gunshots. His monstrous deeds would set off one of Canada's largest manhunts, but he would elude capture for almost 30 years. How would the police finally catch this cold-hearted killer? And how many other victims would there be? This is Chasing a Ghost, the hunt for the 22 caliber killer. On the afternoon of Wednesday, May the 6th, 1970, Albert Morby jumped into his 1968 Chevy Camaro and headed home. It had been a busy day for the high school gym teacher, and he was looking forward to a quiet evening with his wife Doreen and son Brent. At 21 months, Brent was a going concern but the absolute joy of both his parents. Albert always looked forward to their playtime before dinner. Pulling his car into the garage at approximately 5.40 p.m., Albert was surprised to find the front door locked when he reached it. Like most of their neighbors in the tiny hamlet of Gormley, Ontario, the Morbys didn't bother to lock their doors. There was very little crime in the area, and everyone looked out for each other. Albert retrieved the spare key from the garage and went into the house. It was unusually quiet. Calling out for his wife Doreen, Albert didn't get a response. Then he heard a strange noise. It sounded like his son crying, but it was a weak muffled cry coming from the kitchen at the back of the house. Albert walked into the kitchen and was met with a horrific sight. Doreen was lying face down in a pool of blood and their toddler son, Brent, was pinned beneath her legs. Albert could not comprehend what he was looking at. Had Doreen fallen and hit her head on the kitchen table? There was blood everywhere. Brent was crying and covered in blood. Was he hurt too? Doreen wasn't moving. She was cold to the touch. Albert grabbed his son and ran as fast as he could to the neighbor's house. Albert then made a frantic call to the Whitchurch Police Department and told them his wife needed help right away. Was she still breathing, asked the police officer. Albert didn't know. In fact, he didn't know anything about the nightmare he had just walked into. Minutes later, the first police officer arrived at the scene. 
Officer Don Hillock was met by a hysterical Albert Morby, who was covered in his wife's blood. Officer Hillock then saw Doreen Morby lying on her back in the doorway between the kitchen and the bedroom. Albert had turned her over when trying to resuscitate her. She was fully clothed, but the front of her flowered blouse was open, revealing a missing bra. Hillock knew right away that she was dead, but couldn't comprehend what had actually happened inside the tidy A-frame home. When the coroner arrived an hour later, he examined the body where it lay and suggested that Doreen's death had been caused by a fall against a hard surface like a table or floor tile. It appeared that Doreen had suffered a great deal of blood loss due to an apparent head injury. But for Officer Hillock, who had been first on the scene, something seemed amiss. He had seen a lot of accidents, but never so much blood. Had a healthy 34-year-old woman died from an accidental fall in her kitchen? Or had something else, something far more sinister, taken place in the Morby home? The following morning, Officer Hillock's suspicions about the mysterious death of Doreen Morby were confirmed. During an autopsy, the medical examiner discovered two small holes in her back consistent with bullets fired from a small-caliber gun. Further examination showed that Doreen had been shot seven times, twice in her back and five times in the back of her head. Defensive wounds on her hands indicated that she had tried in vain to protect herself. The Morby's home on Bethesda Side Road was now a major crime scene a situation that the 14-man Whitchurch Township Police Department had never handled. They quickly called in the Criminal Investigation Branch of the Ontario Provincial Police. They needed to find the monster who had killed Doreen Morby, a young wife and mother in her own home in the middle of the day. Who was he? And more importantly, would he strike again? Forty kilometers west of Gormley, Ontario, was the small village of Palgrave, population 220. Situated in the town of Caledon, the tiny hamlet was surrounded by rolling farmlands and conservation areas. On Tuesday, May 19th, 13 days after the murder of Doreen Morby, Helen Ferguson was at home in Palgrave with her eight-year-old son, Dale, who was off school with the mumps. The two other Ferguson children, Scott, age six, and five-year-old Pamela, were in class at Palgrave Public School, where Helen had been the night before for parent-teacher interviews. The attractive 37-year-old former nurse was now a stay-at-home mom. Her husband, Russell Ferguson, 
was a former botanist at Queen's University and was now teaching at Humber College. The couple had purchased the two-story stucco house on Highway 9 just nine months earlier. Situated on three acres, the four-bedroom home was perfect. The kids had more room to play and the neighbors were friendly. It was just what they had been looking for, a charming country setting where no one even bothered to lock their doors. The Fergusons had heard about the horrific murder of Doreen Morby. In fact, it was front-page news and talk of the town. The murdered woman had also been a nurse and was married to a teacher. But the Fergusons did not feel any undue concern for their own safety. Plus, Helen was preoccupied with helping her neighbors, who had just recently lost their daughter. She wanted to help the grieving family any way she could. On that particular Tuesday, Helen was busy with her usual household chores, washing and ironing, while eight-year-old Dale relaxed in the downstairs bedroom, watching the Merv Griffin show. He was feeling better after his bout with the mumps, but didn't mind being off school for an extra day or two. At around 1.30 in the afternoon, Dale heard a knock at the front door. Probably one of the neighbors, he thought. He heard his mom answer the door, and then heard her yelling after the family's dog who had run out. Chasing after the dog, Helen inadvertently locked herself out, because of a faulty lock on the front door. A few minutes later, Dale saw his mom re-enter their house through the door that went out to the garage. But as she walked by his bedroom, Dale saw that she was being followed by a man. Dale didn't recognize him, but his mom said the man had a sick boy in his car and needed directions. Dale went back to the Murph Griffin show. A comedian named George Carlin was on. Dale didn't think anything else about the man and his mom until he heard a loud crash and three loud cracks that sounded like firecrackers. Why would that man and his mom be letting off firecrackers in the house, thought eight-year-old Dale. But before Dale had time to go and investigate, the man ran past his bedroom doorway towards the door to the garage. Then, Dale saw the stranger rip down a set of curtains by the door and use the cloth to wipe the door handle before fleeing through the garage. Dale heard the man's car skid out of the gravel driveway. But where was his mom? Dale raced towards the kitchen, but didn't get too far before he found his mother in the hallway at the foot of the stairs. She was bleeding, and she wasn't moving. The Fergusons had taught their children about emergencies and how to call for help. Dale rushed to the telephone in the kitchen and dialed the phone number posted on the wall. When the officer from the Orangeville Police Department answered the phone, 
He didn't quite know what to make of the little boy on the other end of the line. The boy was calm, but he was saying that something was wrong with his mother. She was on the floor, bleeding. The Orangeville police officer contacted the Ontario Provincial Police in the nearby town of Shelburne and the local hospital to send an ambulance to the Ferguson's address. But while emergency services were en route, Dale's dad returned home. He had come home early to take Dale to the doctor to check on his mumps. Russell Ferguson walked into an incomprehensible scene. Had Helen fallen down the stairs and hit her head? He bent down over his wife, trying to listen for a heartbeat. But there was none. Frantic, he called the police and ambulance again. Why was it taking them so long to get there? But he already knew it was too late to save Helen. In the span of 13 days, someone had murdered two women in their rural homes while their children were present. Both women were nurses, and both were married to teachers. Was that a coincidence? The police weren't sure, but they were certain that both murders had been perpetrated by the same assailant. An autopsy revealed that Helen Ferguson had been shot once in the back of the head and twice in her back at close range as she was coming down the stairs. And just like the Doreen Morby murder, there were no empty cartridges found at the scene. A ballistics report later revealed that both women had been shot with 22 caliber bullets from the same revolver, with a larger-than-normal ammunition chamber that held nine rounds instead of six a rarity for a gun in 1970. The police had a cold-blooded murderer on their hands, and the media had already dubbed him the 22 caliber killer. On Tuesday, May 26th, seven days after the murder of Helen Ferguson, a police sketch of the suspect appeared on the front page of the Toronto Star newspaper. Based on a description Given by eight-year-old Dale Ferguson, the police described the man as swarthy. He was believed to be between 38 and 42 years old, approximately five foot nine and 160 pounds. He had a dark complexion and black hair. Dale Ferguson also said that the man needed a shave and looked like he'd been in a lot of fights. Accompanying the sketch was an image of a car they believed resembled the one the killer was seen driving away in, a light blue or gray 1964 or 1965 Rambler or Valiant with primer paint on the right front fender. The police were checking on every car of those makes and models registered in Ontario. The police hoped that the sketch of the suspect 
and his car would provide valuable leads. There was a violent stalker on the loose who had just killed two women in less than two weeks. And for the first time, investigators revealed to the public that both women had also been raped. The killer had left behind physical evidence, but before DNA testing was available, the only thing the police lab could confirm was that the perpetrator was a type A secretor, meaning an individual who secretes their blood type antigens into their body fluids, such as saliva, tears, mucus, and semen. A type A secretor can be found in approximately one-third of the male population. Within a week, the Ontario Provincial Police had received over a thousand tips based on the sketch of the swarthy-looking suspect. A few other women living in the rural communities north of Toronto reported similar incidents where a stranger had come to their door but left when he discovered their husbands at home. The police immediately set up a command post at the Ontario Provincial Police Downsview Detachment. Dozens of officers manned the phone lines and followed up on every tip received. No physical evidence like footprints or fingerprints had been found at either scene. So police began a door-to-door search in the rural areas close to the murders, looking for anything or anyone out of place. Roadblocks were also set up across the area, questioning motorists about their travel routines. Did they travel through Palgrave or Gormley on a regular basis? And had they ever seen a car that matched the description of the suspect's vehicle? In the first six months after the murders, over 20,000 individuals were questioned, and saliva samples were taken from 550 men. Investigators interviewed recently released convicts and psychiatric patients, and traveled across Canada and into the U.S. to follow every lead. Then, a man in Toronto confessed to his priest. Another man confessed to the police in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Compelling, but both turned out to be false. A primary suspect still eluded investigators, who were desperate to find the unknown murderer before he struck again. And while behavioral science was still in its infancy, a doctor from the forensic clinic at McGill University suggested that the killer the police were after was a man who likely lived in the area, but acted normally and would not be suspected of such a heinous crime. He would not have a criminal record and would simply blend into his surroundings. In other words, they were chasing a ghost. And despite the largest manhunt in Ontario's history, the killer phantom would remain hidden for years to come. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was the summer of 1995, 25 years after the unsolved murders of Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson. When the Northern Ontario cities of Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury were troubled by a series of violent armed robberies. Several female shopkeepers and the elderly had been targeted, robbed and assaulted. The assailant would make off with cash, credit cards and jewelry after tying up his victims and threatening them with a gun. After five vicious assaults in one month, the police were sure they were looking for a single perpetrator who seemed to be getting bolder and more violent with each successful robbery. But they had little to go on. He was described as middle-aged and stocky. He wore yellow latex gloves and had told two shopkeepers he was looking for a gift for his wife before launching his attack. Put in charge of the case was Detective Ed Pellerin, who worked out of the Blind River Detachment of the Ontario Provincial Police. He knew he needed to catch this guy before someone ended up dead. 
Then, the robber struck again, attacking a sales clerk at Valentino Furs and Jewelry Store in Sault Ste. Marie. This time, he had made off with $30,000 in merchandise. Knowing that the assailant would likely want cash for his stolen goods, the police began checking local pawn shops. And one week after the robbery at Valentino Furs, investigators recovered several pieces of jewelry from the store at a pawn shop in Sudbury. And to their surprise, the person who had pawned the jewelry had used his own driver's license as ID. The store's surveillance cameras had also captured his face. His name was Ronald Glenn West. Ronald Glenn West was a 48-year-old man who lived in Blind River, Ontario, with his second wife, Raina Lacroix, and two teenage sons. Blind River is a pretty town located along the Trans-Canada Highway, the halfway point between Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie. Ronald West was born on March 7, 1947. He grew up on a farm in Amaranth, Ontario, with his parents and a younger brother. Remembered as a shy, awkward kid, friends were surprised when they learned that West had joined the Metro Toronto Police Force in 1966 at age 19. But his policing career would turn out to be short-lived when he left the force six years later in 1972. And not long after turning in his badge, Ronald West found himself on the other side of the law when he was convicted of armed robbery in British Columbia. West was caught breaking into a medical center to steal drugs. He would serve three years in prison before returning to Ontario in the late 1970s. For the next 20 years, Ronald West moved around chasing mining work in northern Ontario before finally settling down in Blind River. But by 1995, it looked like West had given up the mines and had resumed his criminal activities. Armed with the camera footage from the pawn shop, Detective Pellerin set up round-the-clock surveillance on West's Blind River home. And a search warrant eventually uncovered numerous stolen items, yellow latex gloves and rope used during the robberies. West was arrested and charged. He initially denied any involvement in the robberies, but soon changed his story when he was identified by his victims in a police lineup. And while being interviewed by Detective Pellerin, he hinted that he had an even darker past. I have something that will make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, he said smugly. Pellerin wasn't sure what to make of the comment at the time and filed it away as an arrogant West being angry that he had finally been caught. On October 3, 1995, 
Ronald Glenn West pleaded guilty to several counts of armed robbery, assault, and possession of stolen goods. And while he was facing a 15 to 20 year sentence, the judge sentenced him to only eight years, saying that West had been a productive member of society for the past 25 years since his previous incarceration for armed robbery in the 1970s. And he was a responsible father. West was shipped off to Collins Bay Penitentiary in Kingston, Ontario. After West was sent to prison, the rest of his life imploded. His second wife, Raina, wanted nothing more to do with him. His two sons were put in foster care, and his house in Blind River was sold. He had lost everything. But it turned out he had left something behind. A clue to his past that could possibly unlock a decades-old murder mystery that had long since gone cold. When Garfield Roach purchased the house at 79 Woodward Avenue in Blind River, Ontario, he decided to undertake some extensive renovations to the two-story backsplit. And while working in the basement, he discovered a plastic bag hidden between the joists in the ceiling. Inside the bag, he found pornographic pictures, several empty jewelry boxes, and two gun permits. The gun permits had been issued to the former owner of the house, Ronald Glenn West. And one of them was for a Spanish-made 22 caliber nine-shot revolver purchased in December of 1969. Knowing that the home's former owner was in prison for armed robbery, Garfield Roach turned over the bag to the police, having no idea of the significance of what he had just found. Detective Pellerin of the Ontario Provincial Police Blind River Detachment knew that the Spanish-made revolver Ronald West had purchased in 1969 was a rare and unique gun. With the gun's serial number listed on the permit, the detective was able to track down the weapon. It turned out that West had sold the gun to a Toronto pawnbroker in 1972 after he had left the Toronto Police Force. So why had he kept the gun registration in a secret hiding spot in his home for over two decades? Detective Pellerin then remembered what Ronald West had glibly said to him during his interrogation. I have something that will make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Pellerin knew West had a dark past. But what secrets were attached to an old gun permit? Then, not long after Pellerin had traced West's rare gun, the OPP inspector was asked to take part in a yearly cold case review, which would bring together detectives from across the province to discuss unsolved cases. 
During the end-of-the-year review for 1995, Inspector Pellerin mentioned the Ronald West case and newly discovered 1969 gun permit to fellow OPP inspector Don McNeil. The hair on the back of Inspector Don McNeil's neck stood up. McNeil had been one of the original investigating officers of the 1970 murders of Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson, the two mothers who had been raped and shot to death in their rural homes. The murderer had been dubbed the 22 caliber killer by the media at the time because of the gun he had used. And the police had always known they were looking for a rare nine-shot revolver since Doreen Morby had been shot seven times. Most guns only had six chambers. Deciding to dig a little deeper, Inspector McNeil discovered that Ronald West had been a Metro Toronto police constable at the time of the murders in 1970. But he had not worked on the days both women were killed. And he had grown up close to where Doreen Morby lived. Convinced that Ronald Glenn West was the 22 caliber killer, Inspector McNeil, along with Inspector Pellerin, put together a six-member task force to investigate him further. Now, 25 years after the murders, the investigators could utilize advances in DNA testing that weren't available in 1970. But what about the evidence that had been collected at the time of the murders? Where was it, and would it help prove his guilt so many years later? Fortunately, when the dusty boxes were reopened, the investigators discovered that the evidence from both crime scenes had been meticulously identified, labeled, and sealed with the utmost care. Now, it could be used to catch a killer. But they needed a sample of Ronald West's DNA. Luckily, Inspector Pellerin remembered that he had received a letter from Ronald West's wife shortly after West went to prison. Raina Lacroix had given the inspector the note after West had written to her from jail. She didn't want anything to do with him. If West had licked the envelope, they could compare his DNA to what had been left at the murder scenes in 1970. The tests on the envelope were inconclusive, but there was enough of a similarity between the samples that the police were able to obtain a warrant to get a blood sample from federal inmate Ronald West. The DNA was a match. The police had finally caught the 22 caliber killer. And just in time, Ronald West, who had been serving eight years for armed robbery, had been granted day parole. He was considered a model prisoner with a low risk for further violence. But before he reached the streets again, West was rearrested 
and charged with the murders of Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson. On August 25, 1999, 29 years after his cold-blooded killing spree that left two families destroyed, Ronald Glenn West pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison. Following his conviction for the murders of Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson, investigators wondered if Ronald West was responsible for any other unsolved crimes. Would a vicious killer simply have stopped and carried on with normal life? For the seasoned cops who had finally solved an almost three decades old double murder, they believed Ronald West was a monster, and he could have many more victims. Tracing his movements from the early 1970s to 1995, when he was arrested in Blind River for armed robbery, investigators began looking at other cold cases that fit his geographical locations. Two years after Helen Ferguson's murder in Palgrave, Ontario, another body was discovered in Georgetown, approximately 45 kilometers south. 22-year-old hitchhiker Janice Montgomery had been shot execution-style in the back of the head with a small-caliber revolver. She had been left in a field, and the labels in her clothing had been cut out. And similar to Ron West's other murders, the shell casings had been removed from the crime scene. Then, the following year in April 1973, two more hitchhikers were murdered. Donna Stern and Wendy Tedford, both 17, were found in an industrial field in Downsview. The teenage friends had been shot at close range. Another case that stood out immediately to Inspector Pellerin was an unsolved case in his hometown. The double murder at a Blind River rest stop. On June 27, 1991, 62-year-old Gord McAllister and his wife of 39 years, Jackie, pulled their brand-new Winnebago into a scenic picnic area along the Mississauga River. The couple, who were from Lindsay, Ontario, were on their way to Winnipeg, Manitoba. It was a warm summer evening, so they decided to camp for the night. Even though a government-issued sign at the rest stop said no parking or camping from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. At approximately 1 a.m. in the morning, they heard a loud banging at their camper door. The angry voice said he was a police officer and they couldn't camp in that spot. They would have to move. Half asleep, Jackie opened the door and was pushed back into the camper by a man with stringy blonde hair, brandishing a rifle in one hand and a shotgun in the other. I'm going to rob you first, and then I'm going to kill you, he sneered. 
The McAllisters quickly handed over their valuables, some cash and jewelry, hoping the stranger wouldn't make good on his promise. But then, a deafening blast reverberated inside the small motorhome. The stranger shot 59-year-old Jackie in the chest. Gord rushed for the door and was struck by another bullet. But once outside, he managed to crawl underneath the Winnebago for cover. At the same moment, another car pulled into the rest stop. Passerby Brian Major noticed a commotion by the parked Winnebago. Driving closer to take a look, a man suddenly stepped out of the motorhome. Another gunshot rang out, shattering the front windshield of Brian Major's car, hitting the 29-year-old husband and father. Gord McAllister hid under the motorhome until he heard the assailant drive away. Then he staggered to the highway and flagged down a passing motorist for help. He had survived a terrifying ordeal, but it was too late to save his wife Jackie and Brian Major. Despite a witness seeing a light blue van race out of the rest stop that night, the Ontario Provincial Police were never able to solve the senseless double homicide and the picturesque road stop in Blind River became well known as Murder Park. Now, almost 10 years later, the police determined that Ronald West was living in Blind River in 1991 and owned a light blue van. The randomness and the violence of the crime seemed to match his M.O. And West's ex-wife, Raina, also told the police that the composite sketch looked like her husband in a wig. Investigators were almost certain Ronald West was responsible for the Blind River double murder, but with no solid evidence, they were unable to charge him. The case remains unsolved to this day. In 1966, Ronald Glenn West became a Toronto police officer sworn to serve and protect. But just four years later, he used his police training to stalk and murder two random strangers. His crimes were the stuff of nightmares. Women, mothers, home alone caring for their children when he appeared at their doors in the middle of the day. Had he used his police badge to gain entrance? Investigators would later speculate that Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson had died while protecting their children. Based on the evidence at the crime scenes, it appeared that both women had believed that if they consented to a sexual attack, the man wouldn't hurt them or their children. Doreen and Helen had been allowed to redress after their rapes, indicating that maybe their attacker had finished what he had come to do. Doreen Morby had rushed 
to her 21-month-old son and picked him up after her attack. But then she was ambushed from behind, shot in the back and the head, and falling to the floor in the kitchen with her child pinned beneath her legs. The police also believed that Helen Ferguson had made up a story to protect her eight-year-old son from the attacker. Helen told Dale that the strange man following her into the house had a sick child in the car and he just needed some directions. A story that appeased the young boy and kept him glued to the television while his mom was being viciously attacked in an upstairs bedroom. In their final moments, both mothers did what they could to save their children. But their children's lives would never be the same. For years, the Morby and Ferguson families urged the police to continue the hunt for the 22 caliber killer. They needed answers. Who was the stranger who had arrived on their doorsteps so many years ago to commit unthinkable acts before disappearing like a ghost? How many other victims were there? How many other families had been torn apart? Questions that lingered for almost 30 years before the phantom of their visions was finally revealed. But even after Ronald Glenn West was convicted, many questions remain unanswered to this day. Were Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson West's first murder victims in 1970? Were Jackie McAllister and Brian Major at the Blind River rest stop in 1991 his last? Ronald West was ultimately convicted of two murders, but there are likely many more. And while West has been eligible for parole since 2011, he has never applied for a hearing. Today, the 74-year-old former police officer remains incarcerated. Hi, everyone. I hope you found this podcast about Ronald Glenn West as fascinating as I did. And I'd like to invite you to hear more about the story with the author of a new book all about the 22 caliber killer. When Anne Burke first heard that Ronald West had been arrested for the 1970 murders of Doreen Morby and Helen Ferguson, she took a personal interest in the story because she had gone to school with Ronald West. Years later, she decided to revisit the past and learn more about what happened to the shy kid she knew and how he had turned into a killer. Up next, an interview with Anne Burke, author of The Seventh Shot on the Trail of the 22 Caliber Killer.
This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.